Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. I actually love that song uh, by Best Coast, Feeling Okay. And uh, kind of goes along with the theme of my show, Get the Funk Out, because uh, if you go back and listen to the lyrics of Best Coast, uh, you can look them up on YouTube. Uh, it's very apropos. So hope you're having a great start to your week. And standing by to join us today is author, speaker, parenting colum- columnist, and life advice expert, Liz Pryor. Good morning, Liz. Yes. Hi, how are you? Hi, good. I loved your book. And uh, that, well, actually, I'm re- reading uh, Look at You Now. And I wanted to first back up and talk about how you got into, involved in becoming a writer, because this is not your first book. Yes, I think that writer thing has been in me since I was a kid. Yes. Isn't yeah. that always the case sometimes? Tell me about it. It really is. I was a little closet folk song right. You know, <laughs> I thought I was a poet when I was seven. Aw. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I always knew I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. I just, um, and I studied it a little bit, but it's just, you know, that's, that's that hearty part of you. It just sort of sits there. Right. And, um... Did you have, like, notebooks yeah. filled up, you know, scribble, and you think, what, am I ever going to do anything with this? Yeah, yeah, I always think it. I always thought it was the way that I think. I I was always pretty good at writing the way it sounded like I was talking. Mm-hmm. And so when I first, when I made the first stab, I had three little kids, and my husband said, just do it if you want to do it. And I thought, well, okay, and I'll just get it bound and give it to my family. <laughs> <laughs> How positive. So, there was a lot of, you know, Gatorade and diapers. And, uh, you know, when I started writing back then, I they were little. So I worked in my room. I had a big bedroom mm-hmm. because I just wanted to be in the hub of things. Right. You know, I didn't want to miss. And yeah. anyway, I've I've now, I'm like sort of superstitious. I, really? I have to have my desk in my bedroom. <laughs> and, you know, two of my kids are in college, and people are like, well, you could use that as the office. I'm like, no, I, I got to work in the bedroom. Yeah, I mean, that's where you <laughs> like, that's where your focus is, I guess. I, I guess. I don't know. It's yeah. all a big part of me. But, yes, I, I love the the idea of being able to write down on paper what you feel and what you think. Yes. For people that are listening that are, that are writers, aspiring writers, did yeah. you pitch something to an agent? Did you have an idea where they say, okay, just give me a proposal? Well, with the first book, I, I called a – I didn't know what to do. I called mm-hmm. a best-selling author, a guy who had written a book called – what should I do with my life? Mm-hmm. And I'd read his book, and my brother said, you know, he kind of thinks the way you do. So I emailed him okay. and said, hi, I'm someone you don't know, and I think I have an idea for a book. I have no idea what to do, and here's my topic. It's about female friendships and their endings and what it does to women. And, yes. and so this was about, I don't know, 12 years ago, and he said, you know, you really do have something to say. Why don't you start a website and oh. just pay 12 bucks a month? And get your stuff up there so people can see it. I like that. And that and, was, um, what did I do wrong? Very grateful to Poe Bronson. <laughs> Poe Bronson. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because that was the beginning of LizPrior.com. Wow. And, and then an agent found me and said, wow, I, I kind of like what you're saying. And she flew me to New York. And she asked me what my expectations for this book were. And I said, absolutely zero. <laughs> 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 and she sold it. We sold it to Simon & Schuster. And that sort of, That's you know, fantastic. began my little platform. Yeah. I, I want to, I, I interrupted you, I'm sorry, but I want to throw out the name of the book is What Did I Do Wrong? What did, yes. Uh, could you describe that book a little bit? Because it's really Yeah, the subtitle is When Women Don't Tell Each Other the Friendship is Over. Um, mm. I had gone through 
a really difficult and emotional sort of breakup with my best friend from childhood, oh. and, it, and it was killing me. So after a couple of years, I started talking to other women, and the lot of it is I, every time I brought the topic up, there was someone who had a story, and, and you know, emotions were reeling as, as deeply as they do when we break up with a man. Right. So I started to think, I wonder why women do this with each other and why it's so acceptable. Like even with men, even you date someone for two months, you have to break up with them. But women, yes. we don't do that. We just sort of slide out the back door. I know. It's kind of yeah. it's strange. So, so different. It seemed a very hot, resonating topic, and I collected a bunch of stories and threw in a couple of my own and, mm-hmm. you know, made some guesses and some ideas to, to maybe think about not doing this to each other. It's really it. paralyzing for some women. I, I continue to get hundreds of emails in a month on that topic. And I'm, of course, a, a complete professional now, Janine. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard 7,000 million stories. Did you get any friends come out of the woodwork and say, hey, are you talking about me? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, I did reunite. My oh. ex-husband sent, because I was writing the book at that time, sent um, a chapter to the friends that I'd fallen out with, and he surprised me, and on my 40th birthday, she called me, and that was the reuniting of us. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was really sweet. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about your recent book, Look Look at You Now. Very, very powerful. Cathartic, I would guess. Yes. I'm I'm still waiting for the big catharsis everyone keeps talking about. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, this was a biggie for me. This is a real sort of departure, too, for my, my sort of um, advice brand. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the story, you know, it takes place over a five-and-a-half-month period of time when I was a second-semester senior in high school. Um, I got pregnant, and I grew up in a, a really bubbled, affluent suburb of Chicago, one of seven kids, so we find out I'm pregnant. I'm four months along. There's nothing to do but have the baby and give it up for adoption. Wow, yeah. And uh, my parents were very um, badly divorced. Oh. I mean, it was difficult for my mother, and it was just difficult for all of us. And uh, together, the only thing they did agree upon was that no one should find out that I was pregnant. So they worked their way, and told me I would be going to a Catholic home for unwed mothers and that they would tell the community and the family, my siblings, my grandparents, that I was sick and away at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. So um, really it all happened pretty quickly. Within three days of knowing I was pregnant, I was in the car with my mother driving up to what I thought was this Catholic home a couple states away. But when we arrived, it was not exactly what I had in mind. It was it was a big, you know, building that was a government-run facility for underprivileged, wayward pregnant teens who were either on leave from juvie or on the streets or in bad shape with their parents. So it was kind of a bad girl place for Awful. pregnant teens. Now, I want to ask you this. Did you have mm-hmm. any inkling to tell one of your closest siblings or a best friend, or you just completely, you know, kept it to yourself? First of all, I promised my mother mm-hmm. with all that I was that I would never, ever tell anybody. She really convinced me, I mean, I believed her, that if people found this out, that my life would somewhat really not go the way it could go. So basically she was saying, you're pretty terrific and you're smart and you're lovely and you're funny, but yes. if people find this out, 
your life is not going to be good. So I took that very much to heart. And, you know, I was very close to both my parents, loved them very much. They've mm-hmm. given me a, an incredible life, smart, wise, you know, wonderful people who taught me to tie my shoes and say thank you and be a good kid. Okay. I had no reason to question that they were telling me to do the right thing. So okay. I did not call anybody. No, I did not tell anybody. I just did what I was told because mm-hmm. part of me was a good girl. Yes, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Um, and, you know, that promise really was made at the beginning, but very much sort of after I had the child and left this facility, she was really adamant about not telling anybody. I did tell yes. one girl, the girl I fell out with, by the way, my oh. best friend. Um, and she knew, but not the specifics. And then, okay. of course, I did keep this promise to my mother for 38 years until this book my sisters and brothers, my grandparents, all of my closest friends, and certainly no one in my life in Southern California. I grew up in Chicago, mm-hmm. moved here, you know, in my mid-20s, got married, had three children, got divorced, and no one knew. Unbelievable. So, That's a lot to keep inside. I know. That's really intense. And now the boy. I wasn't, it was a re- serious relationship, right? Well, yes, it was. It was my high school boyfriend, who I'm actually very, very good friends with still oh. throughout the years. He's such a good guy. You know, he felt terrible. And certainly as he grew up, he felt even more terrible and was constantly apologizing to me. And certainly, you know, when he read the book, yeah. he couldn't believe some of the things that I had gone through that he didn't know about. But yeah. He was, you know, I was 17, and, mm-hmm. and we were kids, and so all decisions were left on my parents and me, you know. Mm-hmm. But I like to say, um, after having talked about this for quite some time, yes. there are two sides, two very vivid sides to carrying an untold truth, whatever it is. And what I'm learning is lots and lots and lots of people live with versions of an untold truth. Right. And, you know, on one hand, and obviously this is a pretty transforming serious deep one but one hand it's very very lonely Mm -hmm. and in my case you know the story is really not about a teen pregnancy it's about a girl who who faces the other side of the world for the first time in her life and sees that people in the world are really different than she thought Mm -hmm. and i i really come out of that place completely a different person with different eyes that's really what the story is about my bonds and friendships with these girls and and what we go through together with the common denominator but yeah that said you know on one side it's very lonely and and you feel not only fraudulent meaning people don't really know who you are if they don't know this huge life transforming thing so yes. that's that's the lonely part sure right but the other side of it is that there is such an enormous amount of use of this strengthening muscle inside of you. Like, I really had to learn at a young age how to believe in myself and how to forgive myself and to be okay with who I was. And I think throughout the years, it really did work this self-belief, self-esteem, self-awareness, self-strength that really serviced me in my life later. Um, I recently wrote an essay about, you know, strength over shame. And Mm -hmm. there was a genuine feeling I can still remember after living five and a half months under such completely different circumstances than I was raised. I mean, uh, a week before I arrived in this government-run facility, I was on a schooner in the British Virgin Islands with my family. So 
the juxtaposition is is so enormous and really kind of interesting because we so seldom see the uh, overprivileged immersing with the underprivileged. Mm. It's really sort of storybook movie time for the underprivileged to go to the other the other side the other way. Yes. So I, I feel like you know. There's so much to be sort of said and learned about uh, what you learn as a kid Mm -hmm. and what the culture you grow up in teaches you, and then sort of the autonomy that happens when you become your own person. Well, what I think I hear you saying is it wasn't so much what you learned by getting pregnant at 17. It was what you learned from these other girls and being in this facility and being a survivor. Exactly. Like, I feel like um, one of the biggest responses... Um, to me today. So I've lived in Los Angeles 30 years. I, you know, competed against 15,000 people and became the Good Morning America advice expert. You know, I was actually concerned when that was going on that they might find out that I had a baby and not give me the job. I mean, that's how much that shame lives in you. Um, But here's here's the very cool message about this. When the people who know me for the last 30 years read this book, it's, it's beyond, they're beyond floored. And, and right. the constant response seems to be, wow, you don't seem like someone who went through something like that. And that's sort of the point of the book. Am I supposed to be like something mm-hmm. if I went through something like this? Do, you know, the messaging for me is, and the very first message was, I want to let my three teenage children understand the gravity that... In life, whatever you face, whatever choices you make, whatever mm-hmm. you do, there is a way to work through it, right. to get to the other side of it, and to find your way and possibly be stronger for it. Sure. That was sort of how the whole notion of me writing this book now came to be. My kids came of age for love and sex. I mm-hmm. mean, of course, you know, what better conversation for sex ed with your children than this story? Of course. <laughs> yeah. But and of of course I would I would not have felt comfortable writing this book had they not all three been really okay with it. And you know they're kids, so you know I didn't want them to be embarrassed. I have a very overachieving oldest daughter who had a very difficult time with our divorce and mm-hmm. you know I just wanted to make sure that they would feel but you know comfortable and okay with this and yeah. Of course, I'm the big popular mom with all the kids now because they're <laughs> reading my book. <laughs> well, what, what age did you tell them? What age did you feel it was okay? I to told them? each of them individually at when they came what I thought to a place of love mm-hmm. in their lives. Okay. So I figured sex was right around the corner, right? Yes. So I first told my daughter when she was 16. Okay. I told my son when he was 15. All right. And I told my other son when he was 11. Just kidding. Oh, just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And he was, uh, you know, 15, (laughs) and he's 17 now. So my youngest was the youngest. Okay. And, um, you know, I sort of started out with thinking, you know, what better way to model for the kids that this was difficult? And frankly, I don't know, when it came time to talk to my oldest about sex, I just couldn't perpetuate this under the rug notion that I'd had a child. I'm very honest and open with my kids. That's good. It just felt time, you know? Right. Well, you feel almost deceptive. Like, you know, I'm not really telling you who I really am. I want to tell you my backstory. Exactly. And and I, you know, obviously so many emails into the site. and I just got an email from a 60-year-old woman who just found out her 90-year-old mother (gasps) has a child. Oh, my God. 
and um, you know, and just how betrayed this daughter felt. And I thought, oh goodness, I'm really glad of, you know, that's the kind of thing. But there's something that inside of you, you know, that that um, propels you to do what you do. And I think I had to come to a place. This was a very big. It wasn't just my children. Obviously, I had to tell my family sure. and my sisters. You know, we're seven kids in nine years, and everybody who knows me. What, so it what was, was their reaction? What was your? What were you, How did they react? Your siblings? Well, it was all. It was. It was all over the map. Oh, very different. I bet anger, shock. Yeah, I mean, you tears. know, there was some frustration and anger and disbelief yeah. and. And, you know, at the end of the day, I could write a whole other book. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, of course. You, um, you know, maybe uh, the strength I talked about earlier, this sort of inner strength, um, I really did walk out of that place at a very young age almost feeling like superwoman. Sure. And what I mean by that is it was very difficult and very challenging, and I transformed, but I also felt like whatever life was going to throw my way for the rest of time, mm-hmm. I would be able to do it because it certainly wouldn't be as, as difficult as this. That was sort of the idea. Um, however, mm-hmm. it was almost as difficult to tell my family the story than it was to live this story, which is interesting. Yeah. No, I can imagine. I mean, now what did your si- where did your siblings think you were all this time? Well, remember, okay, so I'm number five out of seven. So the four older siblings were away at college or just graduated. Okay. And then I had twin sisters, three years younger, at home with my mother. And, you know, the name of the book, Look at You Now, came from the notion that before my mother died about four years ago, I said to her, Mom, what do you think? I'm I'm thinking I might one day write this story in a book. And she said, well, you do whatever you want, sweetheart. Look at you now. That's how we got the title. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So she and I sort of carried this secret together. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I I didn't really see that part of it until after the book came out. Because um, I I do feel that her passing really did give me the key, the freedom key to write the truth. And and the book is written very much in the eyes of the 17-year-old. I don't... Uh, as a writer, <laughs> it was extremely challenging to not comment throughout the book. It, it, it's, it's truly just a report, like you're a fly on the wall right. in my 17-year-old head. It's and, so you know, I make no comments on any of the decisions that were made or the people or my parents, mm-hmm. and I just report what I experienced. Um, so my sisters and brothers, uh, you know, a couple of them were, you know, had this sort of dream response, you know, where... Like, my brother called me, and we were on the phone for three hours. And he was, you know, laughing and crying and saying, oh, my God, you've depicted our parents so perfectly. You know, my mother is a very um, eccentric character. She's so unique. She's a total oneer, And people, you know, are mesmerized by her character, and that really is who she is. So, obviously, as a sibling, it has to be interesting to read that. Um, and then, you know, my sisters had a bit of a harder time with, with the whole notion and what happened and the choices that were made and, and me telling it now. Um, but ultimately, you know, they're all wonderful, loving people. That's great. And, you know, it's fine, but it's, you know, we're wasps. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> Keep it under the rug. Right. Well, what's interesting, would you say as far as you growing up, you learned to be the opposite of that? You're more open. You're, I mean, I couldn't imagine yeah. you not... 
God forbid, you know, your kids come to your daughter comes to you and says, "Mom, I'm pregnant." You're not going to send mm-hmm. her off to a government-run facility and say, "No, don't tell anybody." No, I don't. You know, I, I think if I went any further from where I grew up, I'd be swimming in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. First of all, you know, it's it's all about you know the culture and, and where you grow up and what you do, and mm-hmm. you know, all you can do is the best you can do. For instance. In the story, you know, the choices that were made and and where, you know, I ended up having this child. You know, my mother was such a beautiful, wonderful, loving, you know, broken, flawed human being, Mm -hmm. like all of us. And she truly did the best she could. And when I went to her in my 20s and said, Mom, you know, it might not have been the best idea to ask me to lie to everybody for the rest of my life. And we talked about it. And she just looked at me and said, you know, Liz, I I was just doing the best I could. And and in the book sort of shows there's a scene in the book where she has this really cathartic moment after my dad leaves her. And she's just, you know, completely beside herself. And she spends an entire day shoving the mattress that she had the seven kids with him on out the window. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, she's a five-foot-two woman, and, you know, she, we didn't know what was going on, and she was rolling it up and getting the belts. And, and oh. you know, at the end, I went in and said, what are you doing? And she said, I just wanted it out of my room. Yeah. So there was a lot going on for my, for my mother, and certainly yeah. also even for my father. I, there's also a little thing in the book where I point out, I'm driving up to this facility, and she's telling me, you know, that no one's going to be able to find out, and... And I note, you know, there as a kid that there are certain moments in your life with your parents when you suddenly realize that they're more than a mom, that they're a yeah, person. Right. You know, and I, I reference my fourth grade school teacher. I remember seeing her out to dinner and thinking, what is she doing out to dinner and eating? She's a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so there's all these really, you know, human moments, hopefully, yeah. that remind all of us that none of us are perfect, and we're all doing the best we can. And if you can get through it and accept it and sort of surrender to that notion, um, it it feels a lot easier. I love that you are not bitter. You didn't write a book about, you know, oh, I can't believe. You know, she did the best she could do. Yeah, she really did. I mean, and and as a mother, as a single mother of three kids, Mm -hmm. um, I can't fathom what she went through every night that she went to sleep and I was in that place. Right. Yeah, you I, know, you can't even get my. Brain and I mean, and also, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, the difference between parenting in 1979 and parenting now. I mean, I do a ton of stuff on parenting, and we are the most hovering, helicoptering, writing essays, making projects. I mean, our <laughs> parents basically were like, "Where are you applying to college?" These parents, it was just, you know, the pendulum has swung so far the other way that the mothers today can't fathom this choice of my mother's then and really a little bit back then it was kind of crossing her fingers and saying hopeless makes it (laughs) (laughs) so there is that element as well well you always have to back up and say okay what were your parents parents like i mean how were they raised because oh yeah i mean my Mm -hmm. mother was a hardcore irish catholic Mm -hmm. uh raised in the same place you know and and i really do believe so many of the choices that she made came from the culture she was raised in. Yes. And, and you decide in your life, are you going to maintain that and stay there and raise your kids there and do the same thing? Or are you going to leave and open yourself up to possibly a different way of thinking? Yes, my, 
you know, I raised my children extremely untraditionally in comparison to my brothers and sisters. I mean, I definitely had the freaky L.A. kids with the long hair, and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. My little, my little boys, when they were little, asked me why all their cousins wear coats all the time. And what they meant was button-down shirts, Janine. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cute. But I, I want, do want to mention, um, on your website, LizPrior.com, you put mm-hmm. in these great discussion questions, a conversation between parents and kids based on um, yeah. your book. And they're great questions. Yeah, there was um, a real response to this being a great crossover book for young adults and adults. And, you know, having young adults, it is a touchy situation to, to try and discuss. There's just a lot of really hot, hot ticket topics in this book. Not only, obviously, pregnancy and sex ed, but yeah. parenting and bullying and shame and strength mm-hmm. and honesty and communication. And when I was calling people to get information to help put this discussion guide together, I mean, just to show you the difference, um, there was a guy at, at a signing, you know, a 50-year-old man with five daughters, who got up and really gave me this idea. He's a professor, and he said, I just can't tell you how different the response my daughters got from this book than my wife and I. And oh. boy, did it lead to some incredible dinner discussion. So. You know, I know what what people my age, what they come away with. They think about my parents' choices. They think about the divorce and the impact it had on me. and, Mm -hmm. and, And they sort of look at how difficult it was for me to be in that environment. But I called an 18-year-old girl who'd finished the book. And I said, what did you, what stayed with you the most after you finished the book? And she answered, well, I just, I need to be nicer. I need to learn how to be nicer in my life. I mean, the food in that place was so disgusting. And you <laughs> gave your Heath Bar and your Fritos to one of those girls. And I just don't think I could do that. Oh, I love it. I, and I thought, oh, wow, you know, what a different point of view. Sure. You know, I've never heard anybody say that. Right. You never know what somebody's going to take away from the book. It's true, right? You know? How did you get the Good Morning America gig? I know you talked about it briefly. They, you had, you had like yeah, 15, I, um, you know, I had this, this, I'd written my book and w- was giving lots of advice, and then I started consulting through the website, and it was going pretty strongly. And a friend of mine sent me an email and said, do you watch Good Morning America? I said, no. She said, well, they're looking for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't tell my agent or anything. I I read it, and they were looking for a modern-day Dear Abby who had sort of this streetwise wherewithal to help people navigate daily life and the difficulties. And there were a few prerequisites. I mean, you had to be... You had to be able to write because you were going to write, you know, three articles a week for Yahoo. Nice. You had to have television experience. I'd been a commercial actress, <laughs> and you had to have advice expertise. And I thought, honest to God, if I don't get called back for this, I should just jump in the ocean. <laughs> so I, um, I submitted myself on the mass submission, and, uh, you know, a month later, it was down to 200, and I remember saying, well, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> And then they sort of did this marketing promotion thing where when it got down to 20, it was kind of, you know, live and national and on TV, and then it got down to four of us. There was, you know, and then I remember, um, so I had to fly to New York and go on live with Robin and George and meet the ABC producers, and when that, the head guy asked me um, on the final interview, he said, why do you think I should give you this job? Yes. I just looked right at him, I said, because I can do it. Ooh, I love it. 
And he said, well, no one has answered me that. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, they called to give me the job, and my son thought, you know, someone died. He's like, Mom, what happened? (laughs) So it was fun. And so you said you were a commercial actress. Were things going really well? Or you thought, but I want to do something more meaningful. Well, you know, honestly, I was just biding time and and paying rent. I I did some modeling in Chicago and then in New York and then in L.A., and then Mm -hmm. that morphed into commercials because I guess I can talk. (laughs) (laughs) So I did pretty well commercially. Um, The actress thing, it never, you know, I don't know, there was something wrong with me. If I was Liz, I would do well, but if I had to play a character. And then I got married, Mm -hmm. and and my husband said, what do you really want to do? I said, I want to write. Mm-hmm. So I took some writing courses, and I entered some short story contests, and I got, you know, a, a bit of acknowledgement. Good. And then I decided to write that first book. So I did come into my true self much later. Yes. Sometimes that happens, you know. You find yes. what you really want later on in life. I tell people all the time when they're telling me about their children, I say, I'm sorry, I, I, I was that same child. Right. <laughs> Until, <laughs> you know, sometimes, you know, you just grow up later, or you find yourself later. Yes. Okay, so I watched a couple clips of you. You got um, great clips on LizPryor.com. And oh, thanks. Why were you so against yoga? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that has, that, that's probably, you know, emotionally subconscious. Mm-hmm. First of all, my ex-husband was a yoga instructor. Oh. Um, all of my siblings own <laughs> spinning joints, and they're all huge yoga workout, you know, and they're not even here in, in Southern California. Oh, okay. Um, it's just, I think it was just me being rebellious, because sure. everybody loves it. I didn't want to like it. Right. And honestly, every time I tried to do it, it felt like I, forever. It was like, felt like a nine-hour class. Oh, my gosh. Um, but of course, uh, how, can you, how can you bag on yoga? It's pretty fabulous. It is, but I love the story about how you really got to go that time and you got hooked. You want to share that? <laughs> With the cute instructor. <laughs> Yeah, one of my friends enticed me by saying, um, I think you might just want to come to the yoga class and sit there and do nothing else than look at the yoga instructor. So, you know, she gets me in there, and he has this amazing class, and he's an amazing guy. I mean, just Mr. Buddha, Zen, handsome, perfect man. So that's how she got me going to yoga for the first six months. Then, of course, he went off to India. And by then, um, you know, I, I really, obviously, yoga is great for, it's great for my head, it's great for your body. Yes. It's wonderful. But I can't do some of those really intense positions, and, you know, that's okay. I mean, I just can't see myself. Oh, that's totally okay. You know, I mean, I just, I do it for what it is for me, which is very meditative and clearing all the garbage out of my head. Yeah, you know, when I took my very first yoga class, I was pregnant with my first child. I did prenatal yoga, and I met a couple of girls that I still know today. And, you know, I almost got kicked out of that class. Exactly the notes I had in high school. You are way too chatty. (laughs) (laughs) That's just me talking. Way too much of a social butterfly to be in yoga. Yeah, you can't talk during yoga. No, but I did. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) I can just see it now. How far along are you? What did you eat today? I'm kind of hungry. Oh, that's such a cute shirt. Where did you get that shirt? (laughs) She's like, be quiet and do your, your, what is it, your down dog. Your down dog. (laughs) And then oh, in, no. in pregnant yoga, you have, like, these really comfortable pillows they put in the back, and oh, you yeah. lean on them. And it was really yoga light to do prenatal yoga. Yes, I know. Mm-hmm. I know. But so good. Yeah. So where can people find out more about you? Well, they can go to LizPrior.com. Okay. 
Um, I also narrated the book myself, which oh. which is such a, a coup for me uh, because my mother has this hilarious sort of mid-Atlantic accent at certain times, and um, it was a really great experience. I spent three days in the studio and read my own book on tape, and oh, that's, great. that's been getting a lot of response. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Were you ever aspiring to do voiceover before? No, not at all. <laughs> okay. That's okay. But it, it was, um, I guess it makes sense, you know, particularly being a memoir. Yes. You know, for the author to read it because I sort of know exactly what I meant. Right. Exactly. You know, I and, think yeah. it's a different read, though, I, I think, for people who read it and then people who had me read it, you know, listen to me read it. Well, I think for you, you probably would only want to hear yourself read it because it's so personal. I know. They asked, you know, all these questions at the end and had this little podcast, and mm. they were like, who, who, if not you? And I was like, I don't know. I, I guess I should say, you know, Kate Blanchett or... Julia Roberts, um, yeah. You know, somebody <laughs> like that, but, but I'm thinking more like um, um, Mary Pope Osborne was, mm-hmm. you know, she's the Magic Treehouse author, and my oh. son, when he was in first grade, used to listen to her all the time, and oh, she yeah. had this really calm, mesmerizing voice. I said, I guess she could do it, or perhaps the cast of the Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so it was, it was actually quite a trippy experience. I, I loved it, but That's it great. was intense to read that book on tape. Oh, yeah. You feel like you're in a cave for three days, you know, just reading, reading, reading. Yes, right? and also just hearing my story. I don't know. It's really hard to explain. Of course, you would think, well, Liz, you wrote it and you read it, but it's very different to hear it. Oh, yes. Definitely. Do you have any advice? Because the theme of the show, get the funk out, you know? I mean, we all go through mm-hmm. these ups and downs. And do you have any advice for somebody going through a tough period right now? I mean, did you, when you, when you face tough times as an adult, what do you do? Gosh, I hate to say this, but um, yeah. you have to be honest with yourself. Yeah. It doesn't matter, honestly what the world thinks, what your friends think, what your parents think, what your husband thinks. It matters what you think. So if we could all focus just a little longer and a little harder on the truth within ourselves, it it gives us so much. I I think you can go nowhere, honestly, and, 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 and you can feel badly for a long time unless you really focus and clean your stuff up on the inside. Yes. And it's shocking how incredibly contagious and warming the truth is. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's the best thing for us. And also, um, slow down. Oh, yes. Big. I think slowing down and giving yourself permission to slow down is right now um, something that, that people really, I mean, it's just, it's getting worse and worse and worse, I think. You I know, agree. and we're speeding up our kids. We're speeding up ourselves. We're imagining we should do a hundred more things. I do more in a day now than I used to do in a whole week. No, but it's exhausting. And it's taxing it's exhausting. mentally, and it's mentally exhausting. Yeah. So it's not just all your grocery store and your errands and your work and your kids and your plays and your. It's mentally exhausting. We're right. what happened? We used to be able to drive around. We didn't talk on the phone. Remember when you would drive around and roll thoughts over in your mind? Sure. There's no roll over the mind, any, anything, anywhere, anytime now. I know. It's too much. I was telling my daughter that, you know, when I was younger, we didn't call our friends on a cell phone. Um, we, you know, there was time where you just didn't see or talk to one another. And 
it's 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 so different. It's so intense. Everybody's giving their kid, you know, an iPad to amuse them, and it's yeah. Uh, and then you wonder why, you know, we have so many anxious kids in this country right now, particularly boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and the you know just and it's it's a rest, It's it's everybody. It's parents, school administration. I mean, everybody has has played a hand in dictating this overstimulated life. Yes. And it's really hard to push back against it. So, again, inner strength. Yes. You know, what? like I, say, I used to say to my kids, and still do, well, in our family, this is what we do. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> That's what we yeah, do. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough, hard times. You know, we hope that when you say when someone's going through a hard time, you know, we like to think that's limited. Unfortunately, I think hard time is the underneath of a lot of people. It sure is. It sure is. Yeah, so you have to really try and look at that, figure out what it is. And and I do think that people give way too much um, importance to what other people think. Oh, And, you know, if you're you're a good person, you know, speak and, and handle yourself first. Once you've got that down, you're good with everything around you. Yes. And you're a testament to the fact, because I was thinking about this, that going through hard times defines you and makes you stronger to handle the future. I mean, it, it really molds you. Yeah, I like to say, uh, yes, uh, of course. There is a moment in the book that when I'm driving, um, after having the baby, I have to drive up to that state by myself to sign off on this child, the adoption of this child. Mm-hmm. And I pull over. I think I had a panic attack. Mm-hmm. But it was really, I remember the moment like it was yesterday, where I had this choice mm-hmm. that I could either believe in the system and God and my parents and the adoption agency and imagine that this little baby was going to be adopted and loved and mm-hmm. okay and understand that I was a child, or maybe something would go wrong and this child would live a version of the lives of the girls I just lived with and I would worry and feel guilty for the rest of my life. I, I vividly remember making the choice to look left and wow. believe that. Wow. Um, and I think you could apply that. What I'm trying to get to is whatever is going on, mm-hmm. just know that you can look right or you can look left. It's up to you. Yes. It isn't up to life and coincidence and people. It's you. It sure is. You're right. You're absolutely yeah. right. No, that's great advice. Liz, I want to thank you so much. I know we talked longer than I... Uh, oh, no, I loved it. I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Yeah, me too. And uh, when I'm up in L.A., maybe I'll give you a heads up. And, would you please, uh, please? I would love to. I'd love and to. And if I'm in Orange County. Okay. Let me know. Yes. Sounds um, good. I really appreciate it. That was lovely. Oh, I enjoyed having you on. And I want to read your other book about the uh, the girlfriends. and. Yes, friendships. let me know what you think of that. I'd love to. Okay. Okay, thanks so much, Jenny. All right, have a great day. Take care. All right, bye-bye. That was Liz Pryor, and if you missed any part of today's show, we'll be up on my blog, getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. All right, what we're going to do is we'll take a little break, listen to some music. Pulled up a couple songs. This is an artist I used to feature on my show. This is Adrena Thorpe. This is her song, Coming Home. And uh, I originally started here at KUCI with a music show called Moms Rock the House. And Adrena was on my show quite a bit and performed live um, at some different events here in Orange County. So we'll listen to that. And then maybe one more from Best Coast. Maybe we'll see if we can do a short little pre-recorded interview I had on previously. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.